Welcome to Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up about the political stories that we've been covering on One News. We're coming to you from the legendary TVNZ Beehive studio. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. I'm Mikey Sherman. And I'm Benedict Collins. And we're going to talk to you about our pits and our peaks on this recess week. Do you want to start off? What do you want to start with? Do you want to do hey, peaks, pits or peaks? We'll start off this week with announcing the winner of the mighty uh, <laughs> Blossoms Rugby Beer Mat. Uh, competition that we had last week. Um, of course, the story um, was about Trevor Mallard and Jerry Brownlee going off on the junket over to watch the uh, All Blacks and spending yeah, $24,000 for their 36 hours up in Japan. Um, anyway, Trevor Mallard had stopped in after our stories covering this and uh, donated this as a gift. So we're giving it away. <clears throat> last week I said people could email in um, and the best joke of the week would uh, <clears throat> be awarded the, uh, the Blossoms Bear Mat. Should we do that? Anyway, so this came in uh, from Rory, and this is his joke. Ian Lee's Galloway, one of the first people to ever be disappointed that his cheque didn't get bounced. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it took me a while (coughs) to get it, but actually that was bloody good. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So thanks very much for that, uh, and I'll be posting this off to you today. Very good. What's what's your... In terms of the... um, I think we should explain it in case someone didn't get it. Czech Republic bouncing cheque. Yeah. Bouncing check the check, uh, immigrant. Yeah, it's yeah. a good joke. It is. It's a good one. <coughs> yeah. Awesome, Rory. That was great. <laughs> Mikey enjoyed it. Yeah. Mm. Um, my peak this week um, was that I got to go and <coughs> sit in on the um, two-day hearing, um, the first public hearing into Operation Burnham. Um, obviously, um, our uh, SAS soldiers um, in Afghanistan in 2010 um, facing allegations through the book Hit and Run um, by Nikki Hager and John Stevenson um, that six civilians were killed during an, an operation there. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's my peak because basically I really enjoy sort of listening in on hearings or court cases, getting into the detail of things, and it was quite fascinating. Um, and we'll chat about that a little bit more uh, soon when we watch my track. And my peak was visiting Papua New Guinea. Never been before. Um, another one to tick off the list. Um, really interesting place to visit. So, yeah, that was, that was my peak. Yeah. What about pits? Pits? I think my pit for this week would be... Um and we're going to discuss this later too, but would be uh, the Prime Minister uh, repeating the um, pervasive myth about synthetic cannabis that it's regularly sprayed with fly spray. Um, yes, this, this is a, this a is myth true. that um, uh, apparently originated with police officers sort of saying they'd heard a rumour on the street. Um, it's, it's been disproven time and time and time again. In fact, the government was told just two months ago by all their officials that this is absolutely not true. Uh, ESR have come out, you know, and said we've, you know, there's, there's no evidence ever that people are fly, uh, spraying fly spray on synthetic cannabis. Uh, you know, and on quite an important issue, I think, for, for you know, uh, the prime minister to be repeating this sort of nonsense, uh, especially when the police minister apologised less than two months ago for saying the same thing you know yeah that would be my pit it was so funny that she that she mentioned it and what was even worse was that they doubled down on it um the prime minister's office my pit um is that it's week two of recess so um uh, as you may be aware or, or may not be aware recess is basically when mps head back to the electorates um basically have a bit of a break from this place um it's week two starting to get a bit bored now looking forward to um mps returning to parliament next week so we can crack back into things my pit would be um just the hours that we were working 
over in Singapore just doesn't quite fit because it was one o'clock local time when we were in Singapore and just then it meant you were sort of working into the evening, covering the Prime Minister and following her schedule and then getting up um, a little bit late New Zealand time so I just felt all out of kilter. No, yeah, I think... I, Play a little violin for me, not yeah, 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 <laughs> but yeah. that was the first thing I could think of. Otherwise, had a really interesting, brilliant week. So that's the only a little bit tired. Poor me. Nobody cares. Let's go on to one of the big stories that you've been covering mm. this week um, with the court case and Operation Burnham. Allegations of six Afghan civilians, including a three-year-old girl killed by New Zealand's SAS and a cover-up by high-ranking officials, led to the publishing of book Hit and Run. Today, author Nikki Hager took aim at the New Zealand Defence Force once again. Are they suggesting, perhaps, that the parents made up a little child called Fatima who died in her mother's arms? NZDF is extremely reluctant to admit that anything went wrong, and I believe only a very rigorous process will get beyond their denials. The process the inquiry will follow is the focus of this two-day High Court pre-hearing. Crucially, how highly classified information will be handled and potentially revealed. This inquiry is likely to be the most complex ever held in New Zealand. And already there's been a bombshell. Until today it was believed the Defence Force held around 2,000 items of information regarding Operation Burnham, but now it says it's more than 17,000, causing concerns the NZDF isn't releasing the data to the inquiry fast enough. It's not a case of things being off the rails, but it seems as though this, pro- this process of material from the NZDF with respect is not on any rails. Those leading the inquiry say transparency is essential to maintaining public confidence in the inquiry, but it carries serious risks, including deterring sources, such as those willing to provide vital information on the condition of confidentiality. If the public want the inquiry to receive all relevant information in order to get to the truth, it is in the public interest that some degree of privacy is maintained for sensitive witnesses. But Nikki Hager and counsel for the Afghan villagers say while some detail may need to be kept out of the public domain, key claimants such as them should get access to all the evidence. There is, they've argued repeatedly, an unfortunate but unavoidable obstacle to having NZDF's version of events tested and scrutinised. This is totally unacceptable. Tomorrow, the Defence Force gets to have its say, with New Zealand's national security and international relations expected to be among their biggest concerns. So this was um, really interesting, basically, to sit in on. It's basically a hearing um, of oral submissions um, from all of the lawyers involved in this um, in this inquiry, um, where they're basically just debating how um, the process will go in terms of um, in terms of the inquiry. Uh, so looking at the process that will be used, and in particular around how they'll deal with confidential um, information, classified information. So just really down in the technical uh, stuff over the last two days. As I said, I love that stuff. Um, it was really interesting and hugely important too. They said, you know, in that track you would have heard it's going to be one of the most, um, if not the most complex case um, in terms of New Zealand inquiries ever. Um, so that just, you know, um, 
describes you know this, the the magnitude of this inquiry um, and yeah so really interesting to hear from both sides there yeah one of the things I thought was really interesting um, was that Deborah Manning I think was uh, sort of complaining about the disclosure of documents from the defence force was it about two thousand odd had been um, sort of disclosed turned out there was seventeen or eighteen thousand. Uh, in total, right? There. Yeah, yeah. And, and that they haven't really been able to see yet, and you know, sort of raises yeah. concerns about how does this inquiry move forward if all the information is not being disclosed. Yes, and we did hear from the Defence Force mm. um, yesterday, so that that track that we've just um, heard and we've just watched there, uh, that was from day one. So basically, we heard from um, co-author Nikki Haga. Um, the lawyer for John Stevenson, who was also co-author of the book Hit and Run, and also the um, lawyers for the villages. But on day two yesterday, we heard from the Defence Force and the Crown lawyers, and basically, yes, in terms of that, um, that was right. Only 2,000 um, documents were believed to um, be in the, uh, you know, that, that held by Defence Force, um, but actually it was eight times that amount. Yeah. It's 17,000. The Defence Force, though, saying yesterday that... Um, most of the um, uh, crucial documents have been handed over. Right. Granted, and this is also interesting, that's only 2% of the, yeah, of the volume. Amount, so when it? they're saying that all of the crucial documents have been handed over, you can you can guess then that that's a small amount because only 2% of documents have been handed over. Um, but they also gave an undertaking to have all of the rest of the documents um, related to Operation Burnham available by February next year. And then um, everyone will be able to see, um, well, the inquiry. The, the difficulty is the inquiry will need to decide um, uh, and they have been Keith on this um, who's going to sort of review all of the of the all of the documents that come in and either reclassify um, or declassify the information and basically decide what is handed over to um, all of the other core participants in this case um, and um, so that's hugely important because obviously they need to to see all the, all of the information to know what's what and and, and sort of go forward from there. And it's such a balancing act, isn't it? Because usually in a court case, you'd be like, here's all the information, you wade through it. The complicating layer on top of all of this is that so much of it is under the veil of secrecy. And for national security, there are all sorts of limitations. So it's, you can see why it's so complex. And you can see why they have to go back through now that the torchlight of justice is, is shining down on it. They have to relook at it again and see see what they're going to be able to make public. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see whether, as journalists sitting there, um, whether there'll be a lot of information that is shared that you're not able to report on, or whether they're not, or whether they do it in a closed court and how they manage all of that, whether as senior reporters you'll be trusted with that information, making sure that it is suppressed. So. Some of the other options that were on the table was providing summaries um, where uh, mm. information is classified. A summary could perhaps be made available or redacted versions of those classified documents made available. Nikki Hager um, and also the lawyer for um, the villagers, um, Deborah Manning, uh, argued that they, that they agree that some of the... Um, uh, parts of this inquiry should be held in private, um, so excluding the public, but they argued that them as core participants in this inquiry shouldn't be counted as part of the public, but actually that they should 
be involved yeah. in those private hearings. Um, the Defence Force, though, in terms of, you know, when the idea came up, oh, maybe if we're sort of interviewing people who don't want to be identified, we could use screens. Um, that, that was one of the, the options um, that, that uh, the lawyer for John Stevenson put up. Uh, the Defence Force said, no, you know, we, we, we wouldn't be comfortable with that. So it's it's finding that balance um, yeah. that... Um, that they'll have to figure out. And is there a time frame, Mikey, for how long this inquiry is going to take when they're expecting to get, the, no, get results? No, not that I heard there. I mean, they um, they are they did speak about the cost and the time and wanting to keep it as efficient as possible. Mm. Um, but because it is so complex, um, I didn't hear any any sort of specific time frames on there. Obviously, they don't want it to drag out for years and years. Um, so I'd say they'll be looking for maybe one, two, two, two years max is, is, is the sort of gauge that I got, um, but didn't hear anything specific in terms of timing. Yeah. Well, talking of complexities, there's also been a lot of um, complexities in the relationships between world leaders at APEC and the ASEAN Summit this week. Um, I was in Singapore and Papua New Guinea, so let's take a look at this track from Sunday night. Fresh produce in the heart of Port Moresby. And it cost 30 kina for one. Gordon's Market used to be notorious for violence and robbery. Now New Zealand's built this new two-storey open-air building to keep women safe. You'll see from some of the statistics that, um, yes, uh, <clears throat> the violence against women here um, is, is pretty horrific, but providing safe spaces like this for trade makes a real difference. The wider public not allowed in today because of security issues. New Zealand's also joining the US, Japan and Australia, announcing funding to get electricity to 70% of Papua New Guinea by 2030. Right now, only 13% have it. New Zealand will give 20 million of the 2.5 billion needed and will also chip in 10 million to help with crucial vaccinations, including for the recent polio outbreak. While China is funding roads, bridges and buildings. You'll see from uh, New Zealand's track record here, we've been here a long time. And the kinds of things that we invest in are the things that uh, the local people prioritise. So things like electricity generation, um, things like uh, this space, agricultural. But it's not just the hosts greeting us warmly. The Foreign Minister says New Zealand is in a newfound power position because of the tit-for-tat trade war between the US and China. Other countries are looking at New Zealand with fresh eyes now, and that's dramatic. Mr Peters says he's seen a switch. It's um, something I wouldn't have seen before, I'm seeing it now, and I think it offers us enormous uh, opportunity to have a far more profound influence in the shape of the Pacific than we hitherto have had. It's the first time Port Moresby has hosted APEC, the US Vice President opted not to stay in the capital, making a daily flight from Cairns. Do you feel comfortable staying here in Port Moresby? Yes, I do. But those individual decisions are for individual countries um, and their delegates. And it wouldn't be APEC without the family photo. It's, it's just uh, I don't wear a lot of yellow, that's all. <laughs> Wrapping up a challenging week for Papua New Guinea. So one of the really interesting things with APEC was this relationship between the US and China. So they're basically trying to outposture each other. And usually they're really well behaved and it's all very dignified and you have to really read between the lines and the nuances. No, no, they just went for it. They went snip for this, snip for this, snip for this the whole time that they were there. Um, and I just think what was interesting is, is Winston Peters, our foreign minister, came out really strongly and he said... 
you know what, even though we don't want this happening and we don't want this tit-for-tat trade war, this could actually play out well for New Zealand. We're one of the few countries that has relationships with both and other countries like Vietnam, like Brunei, are looking to New Zealand for guidance and how to how to handle that. Now, the our Prime Minister has always been reasonably centre in who we, who we go with, but it was just all of those nuances that are going on um, and it was, yeah, the extra layer to the whole conference. And do you believe Mr Peters or do you think he's over overplaying our hand here? I think he's, uh, in the context of what he was saying, he was like, look, of course we don't want this, this is worrying, but taking advantage of it. And I think it's true, we do have a strong relationship with the US and we have a, uh, sorry, with China, and we have a traditionally really strong relationship with the US as well. Not all countries have that China bond. They have one or the other. Um, could he perhaps be um, overemphasizing it um, for strength of foreign policy? Perhaps he was very strong in it and he said that countries were looking at New Zealand now with fresh eyes. That was his line. Oh, he would have been loving that. Yeah, and he was. And he's, and that, I mean, this is going off in a different tangent, but he was, he's a statesman in those situations, you know, and he comes out and he, he's got the lines um, and it will just, it's just interesting seeing that Winston Peters and that Winston Peters and we definitely got the foreign minister statesman um, on the trip over there. He's in his element. He mm. knows everyone. Um, you know, it just it's a, you see a different side of him than the guy giving the media a hard time um, in the back of a hall in Whangarei. You know what I mean? It's just, it's different. Yeah. The upshot for, um, the upshot in terms of this tit-for-tat trade war between the US and China um, is that the um, local people, wherever that, that is happening at the time, get, get um, you know, the infrastructure needed. And we saw that in your story in terms of um, the electricity and um, New Zealand and um, Australia and the US chipping in there. I mean, it blew my mind when I saw that story of yours um, that 13 percent thirteen percent of the of the population there had um, power and so it's really cool to see that we are playing a role in trying to bump that up to 70 percent um, and also good to see obviously China pitching in there with the roads and, and bridges and, and that so I mean if there is any benefit apart from Winston Peters um, uh, happiness in all of this um, it is that perhaps um, locals get get that sort of infrastructure needed but yeah I thought it was interesting too like you guys had just flown back and the very next day there were the police and the army were like sort of borderline rioting in, in, in PNG because they hadn't been paid their APEC bonuses and there were shootouts and shops were getting looted like yeah and that was that was quite the surreal part of being there. It's obviously known as a very dangerous um, city to, to visit. Um, we didn't really get that. I mean, driving, you still had to take precautions and be safe, but the part that we were staying in, they just, there was, I did not see one person who was not an official. They literally cleared out part of the city. We were staying at the um, residence, so we were among all the other High Commission residents up on a hill overlooking everything. So we got a very sanitised mm. version of it. Um, driving from the airport, you I mean, the poverty slapped you in the face. It was it was really obvious. Um, lots of people, um, you know, are just sitting on the streets and all of, all of that stuff that you would expect. But when we went closer to the APEC venue, it definitely had that other side to it. And, and what was interesting is... So the Prime Minister went and opened this market, right? Yep. Um, and designed for, um, particularly for women to be able to sell their 
produce. And so it's this two-story um, two story building. So we were on the second floor and then there's ga- everything's gated, you know, just like, like you'd expect. And on the other side are just all these people standing looking in. So this market, for the Prime Minister to be able to go there, obviously couldn't have members of the public there. So they cut the members off from this bit. And and it just felt like I was standing there, it was really hot, standing there thinking under this under this little market. And you were standing there with the Prime Minister and and um, all these people and da, da. and then you looked down and it's just the reality. And it was kind of like those two worlds. And mm. I think you gotta remember that when you're when you're going and, and reporting on places, you get the the glossy version a lot. And that was one of those moments that I just thought, oh, this feels like yeah, it just it was a it was a moment that you thought, oh, this is a really interesting juxtaposition between being inside the gates and yeah. outside the gates. And we saw that in your story with the woman whose home was demolished, right? Yeah. To just simply to widen the road. I mean, that sort of struck me and that that that, that poverty that you talk about, um, yeah, it was surreal. It, even to have those 40 Maseratis at $150,000 each shipped in for these world leaders and, and then the Prime Minister's um, excuse or, or reasoning, I guess, um, is that you know they needed to provide transport for the world leaders. Yeah, and what was what I was speaking to one of the um, staff members from the New Zealand side of things and her take was, was, oh, it's a shame that that's become a story. And I said, well, look, it's a symbol. It's more than just the money. It's a symbol of all these people in poverty and we're buying these cars. Her take on, on it was that Yes, but um, for PNG, it's a it's a show of face. It's is that the right term? It's you want to. It's like inviting guests over for dinner and serving them something that's a bit out of your price range. You wanna you want to um, lay it on for them. They want to compete. They want to be seen as a viable option. They're not. So that was a poor choice with the Maseratis. They shouldn't really have been hosting APEC, probably in reality. But I could see her side of things that they wanted to be seen like a. Big play. They want to be seen as a player. They want to be seen as being able to keep up with their neighbours. And you come over, we'll look after you. Um, and it just, yeah, they just got it but wrong. The, yeah, but then you get the, you know, the thirteen percent with electricity. One hundred. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's no, yeah. I, 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 th- I don't think there's a justification for it. But I hadn't thought of it from that mm. perspective and that's before. That's actually quite sad, actually, when you put it that way. I yeah. can see that as well. You know, wanting to put your best. Yeah, face forward or yeah. best foot forward, best face on. Yeah, um, one of those. <laughs> one of those ones. <laughs> All about the faces. Um, but it will be New Zealand's turn to host in 2021, which is really interesting. We did get another chance in 1999. So let's take a look at what APEC looked like when it was hosted in Auckland. The official blackout. 21 APEC leaders all dressed in black woolen jackets, the silver fern embroidered on their left. Though Jenny Shipley slightly different, her silver fern brooch on her right. Earlier, a more relaxed arrival for the leaders' summit, Bill Clinton looking casual and unconcerned by the wind and rain. The United States President telling Jenny Shipley he loves the outfits, they're great. But John Howard may have felt a bit set up, an Australian wearing the silver fern. I apologise to the How are you? All the leaders pressed the flesh. 
Jenny Shipley thanking the Indonesian economy minister for his courage, acknowledging he's in a difficult situation being here on his own. The Mexican president clearly enjoying his time here. A kiss for Mrs Shipley yesterday. Today they exchanged two. But outside the Auckland domain, anti-APEC protesters. Police keeping them well clear of the sealed off leaders retreat. One man arrested, well away from any trouble, the leaders down to business, economic and trade issues. A lunch too, although the torrential rain making things uncomfortable. A day talking and their declaration. The performance and prospects of our economies have improved since we last met. We challenge the world to move to freer trade and we challenge ourselves as leaders to bring our people with us to broaden support for the work of APEC. This is the Auckland challenge. The events in East Timor and today's rain has meant this APEC hasn't been the election year showpiece Jenny Shipley dearly wanted. Her consolation and APEC commitment to do more under the name of Auckland City. So a, a tropical day there in Auckland, way to showcase New Zealand hey. with the pouring down rain. But what, what it shows is that some things just don't, don't change. You know, you have the leaders coming in and they're doing the pressing the flesh and there's always issues going on all around and you have the, um, you know, the US guys who come in and you have the smaller players who come in. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to see how it goes. Great opportunity for us to showcase New Zealand, not only to the people that are there, but all of the travelling journos as well. So I think it will be really interesting to see, see if Auckland can cope. We'll just shut the city down and clear everyone yeah. out like they did in Port Moresby. It's mm. no problem. It'll be easy. It'll be totally fine. I can't think of a good segue between that and synthetics. Can you no. guys? No, let's just no, jump let's in just there. Let's just go into it. Here's synthetics. <laughs> It was scenes like this that led the government to ban synthetic cannabis. Years later, it's gone underground and dozens are dying and the government's scrambling for a response. People on the front lines want a new approach. I'm calling for the drug to be regulated so we can control what is in the substance and remove the problem of criminal penalties for people who are struggling with addiction. Decriminalisation and regulation is what works. So let's ditch this failed social experiment of locking people up for longer and longer and longer. We want to see a response that focuses on people's health, not a focus on criminalising people for using substances that often they become really addicted to. Months ago, action was promised. We've got to get on and with the greatest unction and urgency begin to provide some serious answers on this issue. The Greens are worried the coalition government will continue the failed war on drugs approach. The death toll is now up to around 50 and that is preventable if we actually do the right thing here and we move towards a harm reduction approach and we follow the evidence. The Health Minister David Clark insists that the government's action plan will focus on harm reduction and reducing supply, not just smashing users. But so far the only policy that they've made public has been to make some varieties of synthetic cannabis A-class drugs, which would increase the penalties for both use and supply. And some say that just won't work. Well, I think it's a knee-jerk response. The problem that we have at the moment is with the criminalisation is that we push people away from re reaching out for help. And I can't fathom how politicians think that the exact same thinking that got us into this mess is somehow going to get us out of it. When a drug is prohibited, all you're doing is giving a gift of money-making to organised crime. 
the government now at a crossroads with synthetic drugs. Continue increasing the penalties or adopt a new way of thinking. So we're getting up to crunch time when it comes to the government responding um, to the synthetic cannabis crisis. You know, in that story there, just the range of people, you know, the the sallies, criminal lawyers, all coming forward saying, hey, urging the government to treat this as a health matter, basically calling for decriminalisation and for them to regulate it so that we know what's in this, you know, what's in the synthetic cannabis. At the moment, you've just got cowboys out there, you know, spraying synthetic cannabinoids on leaf material you know maybe putting a bit more down that end and that will be the bit that kills someone you know whereas the stuff over here is fine <clears throat> really dangerous where we're at but I thought one thing that was really interesting this week the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern gave an interview on Breakfast with Jack Tame and she gave a lot more details about where the government's at and why it's taking so long for them to respond <clears throat> basically what she was saying is they're trying to figure out how they can increase the penalties for suppliers while decreasing them, or, you know, taking away the penalties for users, <clears throat> and in New Zealand, it's a, a lot of people who are homeless, people living on the streets who are using this stuff and who are dying. She, you know, they want to take away the penalties from there, but increase the penalties for supply. Interesting for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> One, because the government has advice saying that increasing the penalties for supply does nothing, uh, does not, you know, deter use or or people supplying it, and it is kind of that war on drugs. Um, kind, of, kind of approach but the other thing is they're kind of working around the Misuse of Drugs Act and if you make something an A-class drug <clears throat> you increase the penalties for both use and supply and so the Prime Minister was sort of really saying Look, we're on the back foot, we're trying to figure out how, to, how we can do this and it's not clear exactly how they're going to go about it yet but interesting to see what kind of path they're going to try and tread here <clears throat> to, to help users and, and the Prime Minister you know has been on the world stage saying look we want to treat drugs as a health issue um, but clearly they're you know they're also trying to ramp up um, the penalties for supply which under the Psychoactive Substances Act I think it too, is, is two years that you can get at the moment for supply. Politically how do you think she can manage it? Because will, won't there be that middle New Zealand who have very little exposure to this, yep. who want the government to be seen to be tough on this stuff? Do you know what I mean? How how does she handle it politically? Do you think? Yeah, well, I, you know, and I guess you've got Simeon Brown's bill there that you know New Zealand First is backing as well that would really, you know, send that we've got to smash people supplying the drugs kind of message. Another fascinating thing that's going to happen here though is. Part of the reason that they want to make supply or, or synthetic cannabis a class, and, and remember, it's only two varieties of synthetic cannabis that they have talked about making a class, and there's several hundred varieties of synthetic cannabis out there. The, the two that um, they are looking to make, AB Fubinaca, and there's another one, are the most lethal. Those are the ones where people are dying. But if you make them a class, it gives police much greater search and seizure powers okay and that's been the part of the argument from um, the police minister Stuart Nash and the health minister oh you know we'll give the police more power so they can go in and they can get the stuff off the streets right but the problem is the police are not going to know when they go in what type of synthetic cannabis they're dealing with right so you might see the stuff you might say oh right well we've got greater search and seizure powers we can go in here whereas previously we couldn't but it turns out it's not going to be one of those two right in which case they, they're not going to have those extra search and seizure powers because there's hundreds of different types and right. they're not going to know until much later when they get it tested by ESR and they come back and identify what type of product it is. So I think they're, you know, they're kind of walking into a bit of a legal minefield here, I think. Yeah. And I imagine the police are probably pretty uncomfortable with what they're proposing. Yeah. 
just sounds like time wasting to me in terms of, yeah, if it's going to be so complex and difficult, why even bother with it? I mean, if they've got advice saying that, you know, ramping up that sort of war on drugs approach um, isn't isn't the way to go. Um, and, and yes, I, granted, they might be sort of dealing with sort of, you know, potential political fallout how will that middle class think or you know if, if they do sort of take the the sort of more health based approach on it but when you've got 50 people who have been killed by this in the last year I think you need to put politics aside on issues like this and you need to do what the best advice tells you perhaps and if you know I was astounded to see the number of um, groups um, and, and, and leaders in, in terms of those on the front line of our communities coming out in support of a more health based approach and I just don't know why the government are dragging their heels on this they sort of talk tough saying um, you know we're going to create huge change um, and yet all we've seen is them ramp up um, into A-class drug territory and and that's not going to be helping any of those people who are struggling um, with that addiction to those synthetics. I I think they're trying to have a foot in both camps, right? You know, they're trying to treat the users with a health-based approach while while going after the suppliers and there'd be a lot of of people out there say, yeah, good job, get these guys off the streets, lock them up, right? You know, the rubbish they're selling is killing people and you can understand that uh, that approach, but I think it's the legislative side that's really slowing things down. Not sure <coughs> how they're going to do it. My understanding is they are aiming to try and announce their response early December. <coughs> but the Prime Minister did point out in that interview on Breakfast with Jack Tame, look, things are taking a lot longer than they expected. They're still trying to work it out. She's not sure if it was going to be late this year in December, or maybe maybe at the start of next year. And that's maybe a nice place to wrap it up. Mm. We're now going into our last sitting period before Christmas. So what have we got? Four weeks left, three and a half, three and a half weeks left yeah. um, of sitting before Christmas. So um, and it's going to be really busy. Too. Yeah, we've been told It'll it will be, be very busy. Yeah. So um, you'll be seeing a lot of us doing um, a lot of work over the next um, few weeks, and we'll we'll earn our Christmas break, right? Yeah. So it's been great to have you with us on Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up about the political stories that we've been covering on One News. We're on Facebook, on Twitter and on Instagram. This podcast is available every Thursday or Friday on the One News Facebook page. And check us out on your favourite podcasting app. See you next week. See ya.